very recently, about 300 miles away from Moscow in a little village, um, in a fairly remote area, the local mayor was running again to remain in the post. He was representing the ruling party called United Russia and he didn't have somebody to oppose him. And because he wanted to make sure that some sort of a illusion of democracy was still in play, he really insisted that somebody should be found to stand against him. Mr. Lokter found it very difficult, but in the end, he realized after asking many of the residents of Povalinko to help out, to stand against him when he was given to, to, to be the winner, in the end, the lady that was the cleaner at the town hall, Marina Ugotskaya, ended up being the one that said, well, if my boss is asking me, I will do. And to everybody's surprise, with no campaign, with, with no help from anybody, she ended up willing and becoming the new mayor. I mean, that would have been an incredible shock to everybody, including herself. Her salary would have been doubled from 20, 29,000 rubles, which was about probably around uh, nearly 300, just over 300 pounds a month. And basically, she ended up settling in the mayor's office and she was asked, what are you going to do uh, about it? She said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that I bring streetlights to the village, which is something that the villagers have been asking for for a long time. I mean, what a surprise. But it makes you wonder about the decision. It makes me wonder about the mayor. What did he think after the decision that he made letting the cleaner lady run against him. He probably re regretted making that decision and thinking to himself, I wish I would have just run unopposed. And then think about the lady thinking, what was in my head when I accepted this? I never, I never thought I would end up being the mayor. Well, it's true to say that our decisions shape our destinies. And certainly as we embark in this journey in the Book of Ruth today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to be camping in the Book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is quite interesting because it's one of the two books in the Bible that is named after somebody who is a Gentile, so it's not a Jewish person. The other one being the Gospel of Luke. It's amazing because it's a love story without having any words about love being mentioned in the story. It's amazing because almost all the characters in there are dialoguing. So basically uh, about 59 verses out of 85 are all dialogue and everybody's being named apart from one person that, that, that could have redeemed Ruth that isn't named in the story. It's a beautiful story that actually doesn't just show uh, a sense of a move from tragedy to a, a, an amazing happy ending but it's also a story that reveals a God who is faithful, a God who is sovereign, and a God who is involved redemptively in pain and suffering. And my word, we need to hear that kind of message in the times that we're living right now. So let me read to you Ruth chapter 1, first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons was Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. 
Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This, first of all, was a very challenging time for the Israelites. We're told right at the very beginning, and it's telling how just a few verses can give a much bigger picture of what's actually happening here. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. If you want to become familiar with the context, you need to read the previous book in the Bible, the, the book of Judges, but to put a very small summary. If you look at the final verse of the book of Judges, so it's just before going into Ruth, this is what it says, Judges 21 verse 25, just to understand the times that this was happening in. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. There was a very challenging times for the Israelites because it seems like there was anarchy in the country. There didn't seem to be any rule of law. There didn't seem to be any leadership. There didn't seem to be any respect. And certainly there was no worship for God. The nation had become spiritually immature and very often they would be compromised with adopting other gods from neighboring nations and forsaking the God that had been faithful to them. Economically, they were being constantly plundered by neighbors who were oppressing them and very often stealing their crops. And right in there, there is a famine in the land. Now, we don't know whether the famine, the famine was connected to the plundering that the enemies were bringing or whether this famine was just a result of just the natural cycle of life and maybe a drought that was happening in the country at the time. One thing is for sure that at every level, this was a challenging time for the Israelites, economically, socially, spiritually, in every possible way. This was a hard time. And what would have been a hard time for the nation as a whole, it was a hard time for this family, this particular family of Israelites. This is a challenging time. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It feels like it's the same right now in every possible way. I wouldn't dare to comment on the spiritual temperature of our nation because it's so difficult to, 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 to do that. But one thing is for sure, we know that economically we are in a time of great instability. Whether it's to do with job security, whether it's the way things are being affected with the whole COVID-19 crisis, one thing is for sure, we can probably identify a little bit with the challenging times that the Israelites were facing in those days. And certainly in terms of social unrest, although we're probably not facing a social unrest like they did, one thing is for sure, we're divided, we're polarized. We have different opinions on so many of these issues that are facing us right now. It was a tough time, a challenging times for the Israelites and a challenging time for this particular family. It almost seems like the Holy Spirit is zooming in on this particular family trying to project what was happening in the wider community. This was a tough time for Israel, but it was also a surprising choice for Elimelech, who was the husband of the family and the father in the family, who would have been the leader of the family in a very male-dominated 
patriarchal society. And this would have been a very surprising choice. Elimelech, faced with a famine, faced with the challenges that the country was going through, decided to move his family across into Moab. Again, we're digging in a little bit deeper to understand what this meant. Moab were, the Moabites were a people that had a very strained relationship with the Israelites. The, the two different people groups were not getting on with each other. And it all spanned back in history. And several things have happened to cause this difficulty. The Moabites, their, their, their ancestry went all the way back to an incestuous relationship with Lot and one of his daughters. And then over the years, there have been a rejection of the Jews, there's been a seduction of the Jews, there's been an oppression of the Jews. In fact, King Eglon, who was the king of the Moabites, for 18 years had oppressed the Jews. So this would have been a crazy idea. It almost seemed like Elimelech is making the choice to go into enemy territory. So he's moving from Bethlehem and he's moving about 50 miles southeast of uh, Bethlehem into Moab. The climate would have been different, so maybe that's an explanation of why there seemed to be food there, or just simply the fact that the Moabites would have been plundering the Israelites and therefore they had more resources. One thing is for sure, this is a surprising choice. What was the guy doing? Going into enemy territory. This would have been very difficult. It wasn't just a, a, a case of the tensions that would have been from an ethnic background between the two. But spiritually, the Moabites were worshipping a god called Chemosh, who very often would have human sacrifices being brought to him. Therefore, as alien, as different, as opposed as you could ever have to the god of Israel, Yahweh. So they were going from a territory of a worshipping people that were worshipping the living God into a territory where the most revered God was a God who accepted and wanted human sacrifices. This would have been a very dangerous thing to do. Now, some of the commentators, we were told that he was an Ephrathite, which is an area around Bethlehem where he was based from, and very often that there is a, a, a little hint that probably he was part of aristocracy and he was a fairly well-off person. In fact, Naomi kind of hints at that. She's kind of saying, I kind of went away with my hands full and I came back empty. I mean, she could have been speaking metaphorically about the, the, the family that she'd lost in Moab, but she could have been literally speaking about the wealth that she had when she left and just because they wanted a better situation economically they would go away one thing is for sure they make this decision that humanly is fairly justifiable and they become economic migrants going all the way from Bethlehem into Moab but it seemed like a questionable decision it seemed like it was the wrong thing to do it seemed like it was a crazy risk in which Elimelech was putting his whole family in a very dangerous situation spiritually even from an ethnic point of view they would have been endangered but maybe he thought i don't know how pressed they would have been 
financially, economically. Maybe he thought, look, we're just going to go there, we're, we're going to make some money, and then we're going to come back. And we find that it takes at least 10 years before there seems to be a willingness for return. So they didn't just go there for a couple of years and then come back. They settled there. And in fact, this all changes because the the sons intermarry, which would have been an absolute no-no. And this has nothing to do with any sort of prejudice, ethnic prejudice. The, the Israelites were commanded time and again not to intermarry because very often with the intermarrying came a sense of spiritually being drawn away from the worship of the living God, Yahweh. It's really interesting that the names that are in the story all tell a story themselves. But the interesting thing is that Elimelech's name, My God is King, ends up being quite ironic because it seems like the one who believed that his God was King ended up making a decision that would have been very questionable. I mean, he could have ticked certain boxes and he could have thought to himself, can I make money there? Tick the box. Can we be in a syncretistic environment where basically people of all religions are very tolerant and anybody can worship anything and everything? Tick the box, so we're going to be okay. But he didn't think too deep about this. This was a surprising choice for Elimelech. Sadly, this would have been a tragic outcome for Naomi. It's very difficult to tell from the text, but it kind of implies that not long after they arrive in Moab, Elimelech dies. We don't know how he dies. We don't know how long it, it, it took before he died. One thing is for sure, this family gets hit very hard. The head of the house, the one upon whose shoulder would have been a lot of responsibility, the one who made the decision to bring his whole family into Moab, ends up being dead. And that would have been a massive blow both for Naomi and the sons. But it's interesting, they don't come back home. Again, it seems like 10 years go by and they stay in there. And again, it seems like the compromise that Elimelech has brought his family into is persistent. And instead of thinking, okay, things are tough, we've got to go back home to our family, our extended family, which would have been a normal thing for a Jewish family. We're going to go back to our community of people that we know and feel comfortable with. Instead, they decided to stay there in exile and not just stay there, but as I said earlier on, intermarry. And that would have been totally forbidden. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 forbade the Jews to intermarry again because this would have drawn them away from the worship of God. This would have been a spiritual compromise. And then if that wasn't enough to lose the husband and the father in the family, tragedy strikes again and it's a double strike because both the son, Mahlon and Kilion, are dead. Now it's really interesting, I'm speculating here, but I wonder what happened, it, just for both of them to die. I, 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 I do wonder whether this has been something as a result of an attack, or an accident, where they were both together, or a disease that was hitting the local community and both of them were hit by it. But I think something happened where both of them would have been together, in order to lose both of them almost at the same time. Now that would have been the ultimate blow. We could never understand the pain that a mother goes through, seeing her, both her sons, her grown-up sons, and actually the, the expression that is being used here, it's her boys. They're dead. 
and Naomi doesn't have anything. Her husband and her sons are dead. And it's the worst case scenario because when you lose the males, as I was saying to you earlier on, this was a patriarchal society, you lose the males in the house, you've lost your economic and social status. You're basically in a very, very vulnerable position. And that's what Naomi finds herself in. No husband, no sons, no males who could have looked after her. She's in a really difficult position. And on top of it all, not just being a widow, but she's a foreigner in a foreign land amongst a potentially hostile people who didn't like her own people. This is a nightmare situation. And maybe the big dream with which they left Bethlehem 10 years before turned into the most ugly nightmare right now for Naomi. Everything was shattered and the woman is as low as she could be in. And it makes you wonder, you know, what, what's going to happen next to her? And it's a cliffhanger question that we're going to be left as we pick up the story next week and we continue to see what is happening in the story. But having looked at the, 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 the difficulties that the Israelites were finding themselves in, the questionable decision that, that Elimelech makes and the tragic outcome, it makes us wonder about decisions that we make in life. I remember re reading a story about a couple who was celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary and as is usually the case at a party, some people just wanted to know what is the secret of their longevity in this and the husband said, look, we made an agreement when we first got married and we basically decided that in um, I will make all the major decisions in our marriage and my wife will make all the minor decisions. Um, and then after he said that, the wife picked up the story and she says, and in the 60 years of our marriage, we never had to make any major decision in our life. <laughs> Truth is, you know, we make decisions and most of the time they are not necessarily just the big decisions in life, the small decisions have a huge impact on everything they do. It, it makes you wonder how Eli Malek made his decision. It makes you wonder whether it was the right decision. It made, makes you wonder whether his decision impacted his family. It's very difficult to tell. But it makes us wonder about how we make decisions in life. Columbia University researcher Shina Igana had found that an average person makes about 70 decisions every day. Don't ask me how they get these numbers. That is 25,500 decisions a year. Over 70 years, that is 1,788,500 decisions. Albert Camus, famously, the, the French writer, the earliest writer, famously used to say, life is the sum of all of our choices. When you put together all those choices that we make in an average life, we have probably something around and she worked it out, there are the numbers, 1,788,500 choices, decisions that we make. How do you make decisions? How can we make good decisions? How can we not just make good decisions, but make the best decisions in life? Because let me tell you this truth that is very good from this story. What is humanly justifiable isn't always spiritually profitable. Let me repeat that. 
what is humanly justifiable isn't always spiritually profitable. And in other words, sometimes we may think, yeah, that makes sense. Seems like a good idea. But without adding the spiritual layer in our decision and without asking the right spiritual questions, it might turn out to be a terrible idea. You see, what I like is that in our relationship with God, God doesn't want to be our genie that we sort of try to consult from time to time. God doesn't want to be our counselor that we reach out for a time when we need a decision. He's not our coach who is just there to try to tell us what we should be doing. God wants to have a relationship with us. And everything about making good decisions in our life is about being in a relationship with God. It's not just consulting God from time to time when we feel the need of it and ignoring him the rest of the time. It is being permanently in that decision, in, in, in that place where we can hear from God and be able to make decisions based on our relationship with God, in which God speaks to us through his word and his spirit, and we speak to him through our prayer. It's all about being in a relationship with God, where God is our savior and he's our king. And that's the bedrock and the foundation of making good decisions spiritually in life. And you might say, well, I, I, I don't need to make spiritual decisions about some economic decisions that I need to make. I would say that in every single area of our life, whether it's our relationship, whether it's the job that we take, the vocation that we follow in life, the things that we pursue, the hobbies that we're interested in, everything is affected by a spiritual aspect of it and how it influences our spirituality, our relationship with God in this case. And really, we need to make decisions based on what God is saying. And they, those decisions that we make will affect our spirituality. So what I'm deciding about my job, what I'm deciding about my relationships, what I'm deciding about my hobbies and the way I'm spending my money, the way I'm spending my time, that affects my relationship with God. And also it affects the people around me. And we saw this in Elimelech's family that actually everybody was impacted by the decision that he made spiritually in this. How do we make good decisions? The most important thing is to be in a relationship with God. The second most important thing is asking the question, what is God's will revealed in the Bible, in the scriptures about issues? What is God's will? What is God saying about the issue? And you only find that out as you continually read through the scriptures. You will begin to form a mindset that actually is beginning to understand given different dilemmas, being at different crossroads where you should go. It isn't always a necessary situation in which in the moment you'll find the answer as you continually read God's word, as you meditate upon God's word, as you learn God's word, you will have a worldview that is being formed that will inform and help you in making good decisions. So that's the second thing. The other Thing, the third thing is asking the question, what is God's spirit saying or showing? Sometimes God, in addition to the scriptures, would come in the very moment and in ways that sometimes are very difficult to explain. The same way people fall in love. How do you explain falling in love? You will feel something. You will know something. You will have a hunch. You will have a sense of guidance. And the Holy Spirit in, in, in different moments 
will come and give you that guidance that you should avoid something. And you'll know it if you're in a relationship with God. You will know it. There'll be something in your heart that will tell you there's a warning here. It's almost like that situation, and maybe maybe you've had the, the, the sort of uh, premonition. I vividly remember, I was driving through 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 the estate uh, and and driving slowly. But sometimes, when it's quiet, you are tempted to probably not stick to the twenty miles an hour, the speed that's on the estate. And I had this thing where I I almost had a thought come into my head that said, "What if around the corner, around the bus stop, that where I'm going to turn left, will be a kid or somebody with a bike?" And I remember straight away putting my foot on the brake and going a lot slower. You can guess what happened. As I turned the corner, a kid, and it was a dark autumn night about this time of the year, a kid just j jumped in front of my car, never even looked. Yeah, the, the, just something. Another one I remember again, I was driving all the way back from Silverdale and I, on, on this really beautiful road, uh, uh, again, dark at night. And I remember somebody saying... There are some deer around. And again, I was probably doing about 40 and I just put my foot just over the brake. It must have been 30 seconds later, a deer appeared right in the middle of the road. I'm not kidding you. Right in the middle of the road. And basically, I was I had to literally come to a, a, a stop and let it move away and, and move beyond that. But there are, you know, in our relationships, in our job offers, that there are these checks in, in our spirit, in our heart that make us think, something not right about this or there's something really right about this and then the last one is advice from godly sages so you've got scripture you've got spirit you've got sages basically these are christians that we would respect that are godly people who are mature and we can ask them what do they think how can we make good decisions and have a a check and sometimes even if you've made a decision and you feel the scripture has been guiding you the spirit has been guiding you, it's always good to check it with somebody that is wise in order to make good decisions now you might say what do i do if i get the decision wrong god is like the best spiritual sat nav you can ever have you know in when you've got a sat nav very often it says recalculating recalculating so if you get the, if you miss the turn it recalculate god in his redemptive story as we we're going to see as we keep on journeying with the story of the book of ruth god is the specialist that enables us to reroute and come back if we submit to him to taking us on the right way i'm praying that god will help us to make good decisions I remember reading a story that David Dave Gertz, who's an American Christian writer, uh, he remembered a time when his wife, who was a nurse, very experienced nurse, she just switched jobs and started working in a different place. And she was really excited, loved the practice she was working in. One day, a mum with her 18-month-old uh, son came for routine immunization. She was supposed to give this shot. It was a very simple thing. She gave the shot, and after she gave the shot, she just looked on the desk and she realized that the particular vaccine that she was supposed to give was still there and she'd given the boy a different vaccine. Her heart sunk. And she had all these scenarios running through her head 
in which she, she thought to herself, what do I do? do? Do I tell the truth? If I tell the truth, this this could be a, a big error. What will my boss say? What would the parents say? Will they sue us? What's going to be the effect on, on the whole family? And she played all these scenarios, played all these questions in her head. No one will ever know. Uh, maybe it doesn't even make any difference. Maybe there's no harm. This is my first day on the job. It, it doesn't really matter. Maybe the doctor will think that I'm incompetent and I will get fired. What will the mother say? Will she get angry? But then she said, you know what? I know that I will always know what I did. And I will always know that what I did was wrong. And God will know. So while the doctor was examining the boy's mother, she just went in and almost in a state in which she could be throwing up with nerves and upset, she told the doctor everything. And then he said, let me think for a moment. And after a few moments, he walked back into the room, told the mother what happened and asked her to schedule another time for the child's immunization. And everything was actually okay. It, it, it wasn't a huge problem whatsoever. And one of the amazing thing is she made the right decision. I think it's in those kind of situations that we need to learn to make the right decision. I found that in life, it's in those smaller things when we make the right decisions, we learn to get ourselves prepared to make the right decisions when the big decisions come. Listen to the words of scripture as we finish. Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge God and God will make your path straight. God promises in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Isaiah 58, 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isaiah 30, 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Let's pray together. Loving Father, only you know our end from the beginning. Nothing we do or say catches you by surprise. You know what is in our hearts, good or bad. People around us are choosing to do things their way and sometimes it's tempting for us to do the same. But Father, I want to do your will in my life. If it is not your will to take certain paths, speak to us and show us. And give us the strength to accept and to follow your lead. If we need to reroute, I pray that we would be humble and wise enough to hear your voice. Because in every decision, we want to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.